0: Welcome to Playmakers Talk Show, where business owners, professionals, and entrepreneurs gather to discover playmaking ideas for success. Your host is internationally recognized speaker, facilitator, and author, Steve Klein, who sits down with fascinating playmakers who have made themselves and their company successful. Steve will introduce you to CEOs and executives who discuss their playmaking path toward success. And now, it's time to meet this show's playmaker. Here's your host, Steve Klein. Douglas Smith said, PR is performance recognition. Welcome to Playmakers Talk Show. I'm Steve Klein. In the studio today is a guest whose companies get recognized for their performance. Today's Playmaker studied international business at Oxford University. With us today is a CEO whose clients include Nissan Motor Acceptance Corporation, Home Team Pest Defense, and Oakley. This great Playmaker is Carolyn Covey Morris. Carolyn is founder and CEO of Q-Mobius an innovative communicator public relations leader and marketing technologist carolyn Covey morris is known for building relationships accelerating progress and sparking transformations she founded brand marketing communications firm q mobius 10 years ago after spending most of her career in the corporate world at leading publicly traded retail financial services and chemical companies q mobius is a brand marketing communications and investor relations firm with a focus on helping clients grow their businesses and build their brands. Clients include Baylor Scott & White, Coolabar Sun Protective Clothing, Dean Foods, Home Team Pest Defense, Nissan Motor Acceptance Corporation, and Oakley. Well, Carolyn, welcome to Playmakers Talk Show.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. Nice to be with you.
0: Well, the first question I want to ask you, because you didn't start out in PR, is how does a biochemistry and biotechnology major excel in PR?
1: Well, when I um, graduated from James Madison University, I really thought I might want to go into medical school, uh, but I wanted to work first, and I ended up working for an environmental consulting firm called ICF International, and I was able to work with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency when they were developing their first community relations and public involvement programs, and in fact, helped write their manual as one of my first projects and that sort of thing. And it really got me into the science of communications, uh, how people uh, communicate, how people receive information, uh, how to really uh, engage someone and build a relationship. Um, There was a very interesting researcher at the time named Peter Sandman who had done a lot of work on the components of outrage, and we were working on things like Superfund sites and uh, leaking underground storage tanks. I don't know if you remember in gas stations, they were leaking and uh, lead and drinking water. Those were all programs that I got to work on. And of course, there was a lot of emotion around those. Uh, even the closure of Times Beach, Missouri. You know, it was a town that EPA ended up buying it and we had to move everyone out of there and we were developing all the communications materials for that. So um, it really, having a science background helped me um, Make decisions based on facts and data, which of course today is even more important with everyone talking about data analytics and that kind of thing, um, and also measuring results, trying things, testing, uh, and adjusting
0: then with all that, you began to understand what PR was all about, so did that develop your interest in it?
1: Well, I really saw the the power of communications and public relations and the fact that you know a lot of people think of PR as um, promotion or events or marketing of a a brand, you know, that kind of thing, and I really focused on the relationships uh, and public relations being as, uh, you know, focused on building relationships with different kinds of audiences, and I loved, you know, complex challenges where you were building relationships with members of the public, government agencies, companies, and on some of these large environmental issues, it really took everybody coming together to make progress, and so that sort of started my path.
0: And one of those companies you work with was J.C. Penney. Now, did J.C. Penney bring you to Dallas?
1: So J.C. Penney brought me to Dallas. And actually kind of going back to um, my initial work in environmental consulting, after that I went to work for a trade association in Washington that was a trade association of chemical companies. So I went from working on, uh, you know, Projects from the consultant perspective to government. I went to working on projects on behalf of an industry, and then that led me to be hired by one of the member companies to um, lead public and government affairs in the U.S., Canada, and uh, Latin America. But you know, after 15 years in the chemical industry, I had been lured to Capital One, which was financial services, and then from there ended up at Penny's and coming to Dallas. So most of my career was in Washington, um, and then uh, you know, Penny's. Uh, just had a very appealing opportunity. The company was in the second year of a five-year turnaround uh, that was very successful, ultimately. You know, the stock price of the company went from $8 to $85. It gave me a chance to work for uh, what I called like a turnaround king. You know, Alan Questrom was known for turning around Neiman Marcus and turning around federated department stores and uh, buying Macy's, and now federated is Macy's. Uh, and other things. Penny's actually owned Eckerd Drug Stores when I came, so one of the first things I handled was the sale, the communications around the sale of the Eckerd Drug Stores.
0: That must have been a great opportunity for you to be able to do that, working with that man and with that, with that company. But you launched Q Mobius 10 years ago this month. What was the impetus to cause you to move into your own business?
1: Well, when I left Penny's, Uh, There was a CEO transition and I ended up rolling out of the company and I was uh, recruited to one of the largest global public relations firms to lead their Dallas office. And of course, I had hired and fired many firms over the years of all different types, you know, the huge, the boutique, the, you know, whatever. Um, And I thought, you know, seeing the inside of an agency as what they called a non-traditional hire would be a great experience for me. What I found was that everything I hated as a client was basically, you know, what I got to see firsthand. The magic was the people, which I knew, you know, from having an opportunity to work with great agency people over the years. But the focus on billable hours and, uh, you know, selling the project with very senior talent and then having your intern writing the press releases and things like that because to make the numbers, you kind of have to do those sorts of things. um, You know, those were a bit discouraging for me. So I started thinking... That if I could form my own firm and really bring together a group of top talent and take away some of the things that I hated about, you know, traditional agencies, that I'd probably have a compelling business model. So I started talking to friends and I found seven other women who were interested in uh, doing this with me. And some of them have been clients since then. Have gone back into the corporate world, Um, but you know, we thought if we could build this team then, uh, you know, with us and others, that we'd have a real compelling opportunity. So we launched in April of 2008. We had our first client that month, which I think was Ease, the the global chemical company based in Dallas. Um, And then started adding, you know, other clients like BNSF Railroad and things like that quickly, and then more consumer-oriented clients. So we have a mix today of probably 50-50 business to business and business to consumer. But for me, I really wanted to make sure we we could have large, complex projects. Like, I didn't want to be a local agency. I didn't want to be an agency that just, you know, published the website or wrote the copy for the intranet, you know, which we do that too, but I wanted to be part of strategy setting and really large, complex challenges. So um, we had credibility like that out of the gate, and it's just continued to grow, which has been terrific.
0: Two things I heard from what you just mentioned. A, you began QMobius from the point of view of a uh, client. So you discarded everything that you didn't like, kept what you did like, and your clients are probably a lot happier because of that. The other thing was you started in April 2008, just about the cusp of the Great Recession. So how did that impact what you were doing?
1: You know, it was interesting. I knew it was a recession, and I knew, you know, um, and I think the team that started it with me. We were all thinking about what was going to be our next opportunity and what were we going to do. And it was sort of at the beginning of people thinking about being free agents and you know not having to go to the office all the time, not having to spend two hours driving the car each way, you know that kind of thing. And so we thought, you know, if we could really have it be an environment that was conducive for all of us, plus great for our clients, you know, and approaching our work always from the client's perspective, that they would. would want to do that i mean still clients tell us all the time that you know when they get something from our team it's been so massaged and worked that it really requires very little input and editing on their behalf i mean we spent a lot of time doing what i called like the vulcan mind meld with a a new client and continuing throughout the relationship and some of our clients have been with us since the beginning now
0: let's talk about the beginning your name is q mobius which is something most people won't forget but tell us how you came up with that name.
1: It's You know, it's funny that, that you asked me about the science because I think I've always been, you know, interested, of course, in science. And a Mobius is a geometric shape without an inside or an outside. And, I mean, loosely, if you look at the symbol for infinity, that's a Mobius. Um, and if you take, you know, like a... A paper strip, and you make the little uh, chains that you did as a kid. If you just flip the little end, you have kind of the ring of infinity. And if you go around with your finger, you can see that you know there's no beginning and no end. I loved it because it really signified that we were not outsiders. You know, you hear people talk about outside agencies, and I really felt like we were insiders who now happen to be available on the outside to work with you, but we weren't outsiders. We were really part of your team, and we hear that from clients all the time, that they feel like we're just part of their team. I love the Mobius, but there was a company, I think it was in San Antonio, that had mobius.com, so of course, you know, we couldn't be that, and the team I launched with said, well, why don't you be red Mobius or blue Mobius, and I just, I love color, and I didn't want to pick one particular color as part of the name, so I started researching color online, and I found this word I had never heard of before, which is called qualia, and qualia is a word that describes your complete sensory experience. So here we're sitting, you know, you hear my voice, but you're aware of the chair under your legs, you're aware of the temperature of the room, uh, the color and lighting in here, and it all, you know, completely, uh, combines to form your complete sensory experience and I wanted to have a great experience with our clients I wanted our clients to have a great experience with their stakeholders and I wanted our team to have a great experience with each other so I love the whole idea of that but the other thing about qualia is that when you look at a color like orange um, you have a reaction to that color and it's based on your background and um, your culture and your experience with that color and, you know, all of those things. Um, so when you look at orange, you might think it's a peppy, perky, creative color. You might think it's vibrant and alive, you know, but when you see it, it, it evokes feelings. So I love that too because we're in the perception business, really. And again, you know, kind of reinforced everything I wanted to accomplish with Chemobius.
0: Hence Q-Mobius from all that. if you want to see it, the uh, website is qmobius.com. And right on the first page, the homepage of Q-Mobius, you uh, you can find the explanation of the name Q-Mobius if you missed all of that. Your business started 10 years ago. You uh, went into it, uh, again, from the point of view of a client, what changes have you seen? And part of the reason I'm asking that is you mentioned qualia, you mentioned the word experience, and I think that's one reason that some of the successful companies are staying in business, because they're often their customers, their clients, and experience. So over the last 10 years, what have you seen change?
1: What we're seeing change in our industry and for our clients and really for all of us is just this Whole um, shift in how we get our information. Uh, The democratizing of information, how we consume information, uh, most of this now digital on the internet, uh, most of this in little sound bites now, and even more so as we've moved forward. Uh, But also, you know, how that having that information enables us to make decisions, um, how it enables us to connect with each other differently, and how we form our relationships differently. Uh, and how uh, we maintain and grow our relationship. So it really has shifted everything, and to us, you know, the pace of change is only getting faster. Um, in my world as a, a public relations and brand marketing person, you know, we have to stay on top of everything that's going on, whether it's trends, uh, data analytics, um, the science of the brain. I mean, really, all of these things kind of come together to help you figure out how you can influence an audience. At first, you can identify an audience and then influence it. I mean, it used to be you'd look at demographics. Of course, the first thing is age. Now, we have many clients where we're not talking about... um, age so much as we're talking about lifestyle uh, more of the psychographic things but before it was kind of you know you talk psychographics so it was a little bit loose now you have this immediate access to data on these people like you can figure out who your audience is really quickly um, and then the other part of this I think that's influencing everything is authenticity you know people really we always could sort of sniff out uh, marketing but even more so now you know if they're if you're not approaching a relationship from the perspective of the audience, similarly to how we were approaching relationships with our clients, um, the person on the receiving end of your communication susses that out really, really fast.
0: In other words, you're in the psychology business.
1: We sort of are. You know, it's funny, one of the uh, leaders at JCPenney was Vanessa Castagna, and she was the CEO of Stores, Catalog, and Internet, and her degree was in psychology. And I remember one day asking her, you know, what, why, do you have your, why did you have your degree in psychology? And, you know, she had led uh, women's apparel for Walmart and had been with Target and then ended up at Penny's. And she said, well, it really, retail is the psychology business. And, um, you know, I think retail communications and marketing, that is sort of the root of it. Like it used to be, you'd hear people say, if you studied biology as far as you could study it, you'd end up with chemistry if you study chemistry as far as you can study it, you'd end up with physics. If you study physics as far as you can go, you end up with math. And I think that's sort of similar in terms of psychology and the brain and all of that. Um, if you take the path from, you know, marketing, communications, and public relations.
0: I tell people to walk into a retail store, a grocery store, or a big box store, and you can understand psychology, especially as they display things with the colors to attract you to that. And essentially, you're doing the same thing for your clients. You want people to be attracted to them. That takes psychology. You're in the branding business amongst everything else you're doing. What What do brands need to do today to develop the success that you think they need to have?
1: I think the first thing is to really understand the customer and what they're trying to accomplish.
0: And understand their customer?
1: Understand their customer, yeah. Uh, In retail, you hear people talk a lot about she. Uh, I just went to an event with the CEO of Chico speaking, and she was talking a lot about, you know, what is she doing Uh, How is she making the driveway decisions? One of the things we used to say at Penny's, you know, she's coming by your store. How is she deciding, you know, how is she making that decision? So I think to be successful with branding, the first thing you have to do is to be inquisitive and curious and find out, you know, what's going on. Now, retail, of course, is pretty good at this. Um, And even, you know, when I was at Pennies, uh, one of the things I used in turnaround PR was talking about our – cultural anthropologist that was part of our research team that was kind of unusual at the time and she would you know go shopping with uh, customers she would go into their closets and see like what they were doing and you know write reports on that and everything now of course that's a lot more evolved but you really have to understand not just what somebody's doing but why are they doing it And then I think from there, you sort of figure out, okay, what role in this relationship can we play? What are we bringing to the table? Like, why would someone want to engage with us? And uh, if they are engaging with us, what is it about our brand that's really compelling? And if there's something that's not compelling, understanding what that is. We still have uh, lots of situations where we meet with a client or a prospective client, and we'll say, who's the target for this new thing that you're launching? And they'll say, well, it's really everybody. Well, it's not really everybody. You might uh, n- not be able to quantify it by age, but you can definitely come up with a profile of the type of person you want to reach. And the best way to go about that is figuring out you know, where they are in their lifestyle and their journey and how does this fit in with what they're doing.
0: Well, you're talking a lot about some of the, the positive things. How about uh, situations that happen with clients, similar to what just happened with Starbucks? How do you deal with that? Those type of ideas with uh, with your clientele.
1: Well, the first thing I think is that um, planning for crisis like that is a lot different than planning was for crisis even ten years ago. You know, the speed of news is instantaneous. I think the Starbucks is a great example um, of that. And that you know, very quickly it was all being spread by social media and being spread by news. I think it's interesting to ask people. You know, what do you think that story was? And, you know, a lot of people echo back, well, it's that Starbucks was discriminating against people in their stores. Well, that's from the soundbite that we're getting from media. I mean, media really aren't even delivering an evolved story. But in the amount of time that you have to respond, you know, it doesn't matter. So you have to be ready to come out there and, and do, you know, what you need to do to protect your brand. And, you know, when you look at it now all CEOs really have to be the chief spokesperson for their companies, and there are some CEOs that they're just not comfortable with that and it 's almost becoming a prerequisite of um, you know success in that role, particularly if you 're in a consumer oriented company you 've got to be willing and comfortable being the spokesperson and um, standing up for you know what you really believe in and and I think that 's part of this whole preparation is really like looking at What do we stand for as a company? Uh, What are we, you know, definitely against? How do we portray that? You know, what do we do immediately? It used to be, you know, when I first started working with companies as an in-house person, uh, you had your standby statement, and that would kind of get you started. And it was issued to, you know... Um, traditional media and you might take it to a traditional media person a a journalist that you really trusted and that sort of thing and then that would be you know coming out through the course of the day I mean now it's just not that way I mean it's social media is the best way to get your message out quickly Um, still with traditional media layered into everything but you, you know you don't have the time to do a standby statement and come back. And, you know, frankly, a lot of times you're making comments about something and you don't really even know all the facts. I mean, there's no time anymore in news to do your thorough investigation. And you can't say anymore that, you know, we don't comment on pending litigation or something like that. You have to, you know, be, be beyond that. So it kind of comes back to me to preparation and really knowing your core values as a company and what your executive team uh, has the palate for before it happens. Because when it happens, you don't have the time to go back and say, well, let's debate this for a day. Let's get 50 people to approve this today. Um, you know, you it's the story will go on without you. If you don't tell your story, someone else will tell it.
0: Well, because of social media and the immediacy of it and Twitter specifically Uh, the public wants information some kind of information quickly now if the ceo of the united states of america is tweeting all the time all ceos to to a great extent are the 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 voice of their company automatically they want to know what that ceo is doing because especially if something negative happens that person has a big big say in it so it sounds like you work with the ceos pretty closely to to help them understand how to get that message across is that correct
1: Yes. I mean, I think part of it too is just what is a CEO comfortable with? Like you shouldn't be what you're not. If you aren't comfortable doing that kind of thing or if your approach is, you know, another path or another channel that works better for you and you're more comfortable with it, then you kind of have to bake that into the system. Because, you know, going back to authenticity, if you don't do what's authentic to you as a leader, as a CEO, as an executive, that kind of thing – you know people sense it very quickly so I think in some ways you know just because one president did it w- one way and another does it another way or see it, you know there's no real good or bad it's more um, you know does this fit with your strategy is it helpful to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish are you making the the conscious decision to be doing that um, and then you know, having that be baked into the planning,
0: and it needs to fit their personality too. That's not all right. CEOs can do it the way they need to, so I'm willing to bet you work with them to prep them to get all that to get together.
1: Well, yes, and I think you know, there's some relief when you figure figure out that you don't have to do what everybody else does. Uh, not everybody is uh, Mark Cuban. Not everybody is you know. Everyone has a different personality, a different style, and that's okay. And actually. It works, you know, it can work to your advantage to be different but still again be driving back to, you know, what really means something to you.
0: So tell everybody exactly how they can find out more about Q Mobius.
1: Well, how can you find out more about Q Mobius? I guess our website has a, a good list of our services and our people and our clients. And um, most of our business, you know, one of the things that I use to measure success of Cumobius of is how much of our business comes from referral. I think that I could tell you uh, that I've, um, I can count on two hands, and maybe maybe not one, but I can count on two hands the numbers of requests for proposals we've responded to. I mean, usually people come to us because they've either worked with one of our team members, or they've worked with Cumobius, or they've uh, they know somebody who's worked with Qmobius, so I'm, I'm proud of that.
0: It says a lot for what you're doing, and that website is Qmobius, M O B I U S dot com. Well, Carolyn, thank you very much for being a part of Playmakers Talk Show.
1: Well you're welcome, Steve. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, you're definitely a Playmaker. A Playmaker is somebody that makes something happen. You're definitely doing that, and you're helping your companies make, your clients make <laughs> something happen, too. Carolyn Covey-Morris has been our guest. She is the founder and CEO of Q-Mobius. Thank you to Carolyn for being a Playmaker. It's been great having our listeners join us. Join us again at PlaymakersTalkShow.com where you can get all of our past episodes. That's PlaymakersTalkShow.com, and we'll be back with more Playmakers. See you then. You've been listening to Playmakers Talk Show with Steve Klein. Join Steve again at PlaymakersTalkShow.com for more interviews with interesting and successful playmaking CEOs and executives.